I've been blessed with a lot of good friends. And uh, I always think back to a, a woman friend from high school who told me, in order to have a friend, you have to be a friend. And that's always stuck with me. What does it mean to be a good friend? Well, I've just always tried to be there and be helpful. And I always had beekeeping friends who were approaching me with questions of things that they couldn't figure out or weren't clear to them. And I could be a friend by being a friend, by answering those questions, by helping people to become better beekeepers. You probably recognize that. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Bee Yard. You're listening to episode 20, Memory Wood. This episode is special because it's about friendship. My friendship with Tom began as a conversation about bees and pesticides that evolved over time into a back and forth about life how to live well and be a great friend. And Tom was a great friend to many. My name is Laura Tyler. I'm your producer and host. This is episode 20, Memory Wood, written by Tom Theobald in 1990 and read by Tom in 2021. Several years ago, my sister discovered some reels of color home movies that my father had taken in the 40s. She transferred these to videotape and gave a copy to each of us. Some of the images were ravaged by time, but many were surprisingly clear. As Barbara and I watched the tape for the first time, a scene jumped out from the memory of a long-buried past. It was a little five-year-old boy, aping for the camera, towered over by a giant, both bundled against the cold, loading their arms with firewood from the woodpile. That's it, Barbara exclaimed. That's where it started. She was right, of course, and I thought of the days my dad and I had split firewood and moved it inside of cheery winter evenings before television arrived, spent in front of the fire working jigsaw puzzles, of times when the power went out for days and the fireplace provided not only warmth but also hot food. No doubt, those early experiences were a seed. I'm a woodcutter by choice as well as by necessity, and perhaps It's even in my genetic code. I love to see the winter heat stacked neatly out behind the house. It gives a special sense of security, like little else, a feeling of providing directly for my own welfare. And I love to heat with wood, to tend to the stove, to poke and prod and stoke, to smell the stew bubbling away, filling the house with tantalizing aromas. It's an odd quirk of nature that as the thermometer plummets far below zero, and most substances known to man freeze up solid, the woodpile begins to melt 
mysteriously. On these brittle cold mornings, a glance out the kitchen window suggests that some strange life form, stirred to action by the deep cold, is rapidly gnawing away at the neatly stacked ricks of firewood. In actuality, of course, the lair of the primordial beast is in the living room, and as the temperature drops to 32 below zero, as it did the Saturday before Christmas, the wood stove develops a ravenous appetite. It draws me like a magnet when I come in from the cold on these sub-zero days. Like slipping into a hot bath, the heat from the stove penetrates slowly, almost magically, to the very marrow, until I finally have to crab-walk away lest scorching pants touch bare legs. Along with the heat comes the inevitable scent of wood smoke in the house. Some find that a deterrent, but I've always thought of it as pleasant. In fact, I've always felt a little sorry for those who spend their lives indoors where the air is filtered, scrubbed, and conditioned. It would be hard for me to imagine a home without a stove to stand and warm by. A life spent outdoors is spun with a spider web of fragrances, aromas, scents, and smells which capture recollections in its sticky net. In spring, the new sun draws up a sweet smell of moist earth and new growth. October is frosty dawns on curing grass, a warm fall sun on flannel, leather, pine sap, sawdust, and chain oil. For October is the time for cutting wood. With the harvest over and the bees secured for winter, woodcutting gives me a new focus, gets me back outside and into the hills after so many hours trapped in the honey house. For many years, my friend Richie and I took thinning contracts, first with the city of Boulder on the Walker Ranch and later with the Colorado State Forest in the foothills northwest of Niwot. I often stood on the edge of a contract before we started cutting. In my imagination, I masked out the heavy second growth, picturing the beauty of that scene from 140 years ago. The lower foothills must have been beautiful before the arrival of our civilization. Wildfires periodically race through, burning off the understory, the ground vegetation, and the seedling ponderosas. With progress came control of these natural wildfires, and seedling ponderosas quickly established themselves between the older trees, producing impenetrable thickets of weed trees which shaded out the understory and competed for water and nutrients. There was seldom enough moisture for these new forests, and disease and insects soon gained a foothold. On a contract, trees to remain were marked by the foresters. The rest came out 
and the slash was cut below knee height and scattered. At times, because of age or disease, one of the older trees had to be removed. Woodcutters have come under considerable criticism in recent years. Supposedly, they rape the land and leave a mess. We tried to do things differently. I never cut one of these venerable old giants without a certain sense of reverence. Visualizing the span of history and the changes in the land below which it had observed. When we had completed our work, the remaining trees were free to thrive, and a small part of the forest was set back upon a path toward what it had once been. Richie and I looked with pride at our finished contracts and talked of someday bringing grandchildren back to see our work. It's doubtful that we ever will, but it doesn't matter. Someone's grandchildren may see our work some day, and a few may even sense the gentle caring hands upon the land. Our last contract was a good one, and Richie and I had both accumulated a nice surplus, security against the future cold. And then Richie's home state of Rhode Island beckoned. Richie is a master New England carpenter, but he was starving in Colorado, and Rhode Island was booming. The choice was difficult but obvious. I had often worked with Richie in the winter, when he needed help and my work had slowed. I kidded him about his heavy Rhode Island accent, told him that it was his mission in life to teach me carpentry, and mine to teach him to speak English. He always reminded me that it was he who spoke the original American English, and me who spoke with an accent. I miss that accent now. In late September of 1988, Richie and his wife, Hisa, cleared their house and tried to squeeze a life into a U-Haul. Richie could have easily sold his wood, he certainly could have found a place for the resulting cash, but he insisted that I take it, and only someone who has cut their own wood can appreciate the magnitude of the gift. More than a winter's supply, all cut, split, and dry. I loaded wood into my truck out behind the house, and their oldest daughter, Misa, 10, volunteered to help. As we loaded, I shared my sadness at their leaving, reflecting on what the inanimate stack of firewood represented. It was days of work up and down the mountain, picnics with the kids when everyone came along. It was Stellar's Jays, October sun, bluebirds, deer and wild turkeys, Horses on the open range appearing out of the trees for a drink, and eagles riding the Lee Thermal over the ridge. It was Richie's five-year-old son, Ty, standing proudly before us with a fistful of colored ribbons he had diligently collected from the trees as we worked. And it was sweat and sawdust mixed with chain oil. Misa listened politely. She had been a part of many of those days, 
and then, with the clear perception of a child, said simply, Memory Wood. Memory Wood. Indeed it was. Those memories will flicker in my stove on the first chill nights of fall, on brilliant sub-zero days, at Thanksgiving and on Christmas morning, through the first blizzard and the last, until there are only ashes in the garden. Tom, I love this piece. Um, so many different reasons. Do you want to tell me what it's like for you reading this now? Well, Richie was a good friend. We uh, spent a lot of time together. We were on the volunteer fire department together. We cut wood together, and uh, he uh, unfortunately was killed in an ultralight after he had gone back to Rhode Island. And uh, I think of that wood, as his daughter described it, as memory wood. It brings back a lot of memories, and even more now that that Richie is gone. So it's one mm-hmm. of my favorites, too. It isn't just firewood. Mm-hmm. It, is, it isn't just heating the house. It's much more than that. It's just so beautiful that the the warmth of the wood is connected to this memory of your friend. Mm-hmm. Well, it represents uh, the fabric of my life, really. Burning firewood, cutting firewood, is part of my attempt at self-sufficiency, but it also brings back some very cherished memories. Mm-hmm. I remember a time years ago, we were talking about meeting people, and I can't remember exactly how you phrased this, but it was something about not wanting to invest a lot of time in new people that you were just meeting because you didn't know how long that they would stick around. And then reading this story now, it's um, adding some depth to my understanding of that comment. Well, I remember one of the last conversations that I had with Hisa, Richie's wife. She said, we'll be back. And I said, no, you won't. Because I knew that when they went back to Rhode Island, they'd be re-embedded in where Richie had grown up, and I didn't expect them to return We'd had Mm -hmm. a a good friendship, a good life together, but they weren't coming back, and I knew that. Mm -hmm. Reading your writing over a period of time, knowing you, thinking about friendship, and it's really striking me what an important role friends play in our lives. You know, we talk a lot about family and so on as being a support system, but in my experience here in Colorado, and I think it's part of Colorado culture, is that the friendships and the community um, really can step up in, in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I lost a, a good friend just recently who kind of uh, 
epitomizes that. I had met him when he was a beekeeper. I was the president of the Boulder County Beekeepers. And uh, he was running for governor. We developed a friendship that transcended the bees because within a few years he was out of the bees. I was drawn to him because he was a man of character and I could see that. He had strong convictions and strong beliefs. He was about uh, 10 years older than me. But even after the bees faded, one or the other of us would always make an effort to contact the other, maybe once a year, no more often than that, just to get together for a cup of coffee and a donut or just to catch up on the friendship. Mm-hmm. So another piece that strikes me about this is... Um this almost impressionistic quality of memory, you speaking in lists about Stellar's Jays and um, horses coming down for a drink, I find that very moving. Um, what's it like for you hearing that, reading that now? What do you think about it? I remember those uh, scenes that I refer to specifically, clearly, and they meant something to me at the time. And they mean something to me now. Mm-hmm. Cutting firewood is uh, like taking on another job. <laughs> it's, uh, How it, so? It takes time, effort. It just doesn't come easily. I mean, easily enough you could order a truckload of firewood and pay for it. But it's not the same. And I've cut firewood all along the front range from the Walker Ranch all the way up to the northern border of Boulder County and uh, in various conditions. Some years when I was cutting greenwood, and greenwood is really taxing because it's so heavy, and cutting a load of greenwood is much more strenuous, much more... uh, tiring than good dry pine. When I was burning pine, I sometimes felt like a fireman on an old locomotive standing there shoveling the firewood into the stove (laughs) because it consumed that pine so rapidly. Yeah, well, it sounds like Barbara noticed that um, you like to cut firewood. Oh, sure. That's that's a reason for her comment. She would kid me about it. Yeah, I was going to say, how would she tease you about it? She was always there to help, but she uh, spoke jokingly about it from time to time about how much effort I put into the firewood and how important it was to me. Yeah. So, Tom, is there anything else about memory wood that you want to share with us and the listeners? I don't just write for myself. I write for all those other unknown friends who were out there then and now. I've been very fortunate. Hmm. I've been surrounded by good friends who was who were always willing to help me who appreciated the friendship is there something different about beekeeping friends from your other friends 
Yes. I mean, I have friends for a lot of reasons, but the beekeeping is something that we share. It's something that you can't always express well to non-beekeepers. It's, it's something that beekeepers have in common. It's a common language and a common approach to life. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard. We publish new episodes on Fridays at noon. Join us next week for episode 21, Chickens I Have Known. In the meantime, hop on over to notesfromthebeeyard.buzz to subscribe.